Hi. My friends, come on, say it, my friends. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. Hi, Akash. Hello, hi. I like your headphones. Thank you. I'm behaving <laughs> myself from the last time. Oh, good. You got it. Is the sound okay? That's what I wanted to make sure it is. Oh, what's the one second, sir? I plugged it into the converter, but I didn't plug it into the micro USB one second. <laughs> In the last few interviews, including my own, I have my teenage children to teach me how to hook it all yeah. up. <laughs> okay, this should be better, right? My guest today is Akash Seti, the CEO of Quest Alliance. Akash comes from a family dedicated to the development sector. His past experiences in the private sector working in companies like Microsoft reflects in the manner that he's built this organization leveraging technology to improve the quality of education and to empower youth to navigate the future of work. Thank you, Akash, for being our guest today in No Cost Extension. I really appreciate your time. To begin with, I guess, uh, just for the listeners, um, how long have we known each other? I think uh, maybe 10 years, close to 10 years, 2011, 12, maybe that time, yeah. Yeah, I thought so. I thought, in, I think we maybe got to know you when we were doing a report on livelihoods, I believe. And no, no, the reason I just bring it up is because is I think we, we've known each other for a while. I think when I first got to know you, and this is clearly my own ignorance, but I had no idea about your father, <laughs> about your family. And I thought maybe it would be good to, to start off honestly with your childhood. And maybe if we can talk a little bit about how, I, I guess, the development sector was very much part of your upbringing. And, and really just give people a sense of what that was in, in your own household, since I think it was definitely very different than the household I grew up in. <laughs> sure, yeah, I, I guess I can start with that because that's, that's probably the foundation of a lot of what I do. So I grew up in Ahmedabad in um, the 1980s, and I think my very early age, my recollection of, you know, family holidays uh, was going to smaller remote areas in Gujarat uh, on World Women's Day or World Environment Day because uh, a lot of my early experiences were to actually go along with my dad who is uh, Gagan Sethi, who is a human rights activist and does a lot of work, was doing a lot of work in incubating community-based organizations back then in terms of getting them, uh, finding local leaders who are from the community and working with them to identify challenges in the communities and also a lot of activists in that community to be able to bring them together, to be able to help them uh, identify the rights that they have and be able to respond to some of the local issues. 
my my mother and father actually were both classmates in social work school so uh, mom got the gold medal dad didn't uh, so they uh, she went on to work in government with the gov- labor department while my father joined Tanzania Social Service Society which was started by the priests to get young people involved in development work i think that was the starting point and i think as my dad started the work that he did uh, he started really inspiring or encouraging a lot of my family members to kind of uh, come in and and work with him so we have an architect uh, in the family who runs hunar shala foundation which is a low cost housing uh, model started in kutch shushma ayangar who runs uh, who started kutch mahila vikas sangathan then later kutch navnirman abhiyan and then a crafts and livelihood organization khameer so she was involved uh, quite a bit in starting the women's movement in kutch uh my uh, bua who's my dad's sister does who started drishti media a communication organization doing a lot of uh, did a lot of work on film basically using video and the power of video at that time to uh, document a lot of stories of of movements in the field and my mother actually co-founded that organization my uncle who's a world billiards champion who runs olympic gold quest uh, which is a foundation that supports sports people athletes who have the potential to win olympic golds to provide them with the last mile support his wife who runs uh, riverside school which is a landmark school in terms of redefining education student centered or child centered education and my sister who runs a museum on conflict where she looks at exploring new narratives on how to think about conflict how to think about museums in today's time which are not permanent fixtures but more interactive spaces and am i missing someone no no thank you and i appreciate that because i think um you just demonstrated how you come from an ngo family if there is even such a term for that i i guess when you when you think about that and and like you were saying when you were younger and you were attending the women day celebrations uh what 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 year was this around i think the first memory i have would be around 86 87 maybe when i was 6 or 7 years old got it and and so this was part of parcel of your life I and mean, this is what life was in your mind at least and and so i i guess and i asked this i think because we also as you know near and i are i guess maybe a family ngo as well since we worked together we started thus far together my older brother also works in the development sector when you were growing up i guess was this something that you felt was a place that you wanted to be part of or was this something that you actually were like I'm going to do something very different uh this is questions i think that is asked upon us and and our own children and how do we expose them how do we not expose them and so i guess when growing up what was your attitude i guess towards the development sector was it to sort of follow in your parents footsteps or was it to actually do something completely different I I was growing up I was I think quite cynical about the uh, development sector I saw the hard side of life that a lot of 
people in the sector at that time had to experience, whether it was, you know, working 16, 18 hours a day, earning very basic income, putting your life at risk, going into uh, the villages and, you know, really showing dissent to people in positions of power. Some of my dad's friends were shot and killed in the process. You know, that, that made me quite cynical about the choice of life that they had made because uh, I couldn't see return on investment of that uh, in my lifetime. I also found it really hard to explain, uh, you know, in school what my uh, parents do. So, so that made me cynical. I was, I definitely did not want to do development work. Maybe came on later. Uh, I, I definitely wanted to get out of the development space. I wanted to actually be a chef. That was my aspiration for to be like in sports management uh, while I was in school and college. Those were the two things I was quite passionate about. And uh, my mom, who is, uh, you know, a PhD from IIM Ahmedabad, could not, uh, you know, fathom <laughs> the fact that his her son would actually would be making food in, in some restaurant somewhere. So she... She was very clear that, you know, you got to go and, and study economics and statistics in St. Xavier's College. So that was just the choice she made for me. And I didn't have agency <laughs> at that time on my own to, to actually, uh, you know, fight for my rights uh, at that stage to stick to that path that I had identified for myself. It's amazing that you were able to just talk about this casually about people your father worked with being shot and killed. And, and I say this more because clearly the type of exposure you had within the development sector, number one, it is a very different development sector uh, today than I think it was, like you were saying. I also think, again, having uh, worked with your father more closely in the last year, given COVID and what's happened with informal workers and, and just seeing, you know, his work up front and close, I guess, with everything he has been doing in this community, there was clearly back then and to a certain extent even now, I would say a, a roughness to the work that your father has, has taken upon himself. And, and I guess growing up clearly with sort of where India was growing up, so to speak, it was much easier, and I, and I don't mean this sort of negatively, but it was much easier to say, okay, well, let's follow sort of the aspirations of middle-class Indians versus necessarily the, the ethos that your parents, I guess, brought together. And I mean, I have deep respect for your dad. I mean, there's three people that I know of, and I know of, not even personally, but there's three people I know that even today in 2021, who will just light up a cigarette in the middle of a meeting. And I think it's Dave Chappelle, it's Sean Penn, and it's your father. I mean, these are the three people that I've seen from afar and then see that happen. But clearly, I mean, what he was doing in to a certain extent continues to do is is very different I, if that's okay with me saying that than perhaps what Quest Alliance does. And so I guess what what was and was there, I guess, even an aha moment when you decided to come into this space and what was sort of similar, and, and maybe now you can even think about it more rationally than maybe when you made these decisions 10, 15, 20 years ago, but what was sort of similar to where, I guess, of what your parents did and, and what's different as well? Because as you said, it is a very different space today. 
Yeah, sure. I think uh, as I entered college, I got the opportunity to actually join a youth organization, which is ISEC. And I think as an ISEC volunteer, I started actually being a facilitator and a, and a guide to other young people to create experiences around social responsibility, around entrepreneurship, around cultural understanding. A lot of what we did at an early stage was to facilitate internship programs for young people from other countries to come in, in to India and experience Indian development sector and also contribute with the skills, not just in the development sector, but also in the corporate sector. But I think learning to be a youth facilitator was a very, very empowering experience to be able to connect with like-minded young people of the same age, to be able to play a different role. I, I think that's what got me really charged up about uh, working with young people, working with youth. You know, I failed my ninth standard in school, and I think that was another key experience, which actually made me experience a lot of a certain amount of vulnerability i think that comes with uh, being labeled a failure at an early age and then having to you know work with those emotions in school uh, the reason i'm saying that is because i think everyone experiences some kind of marginalization or some kind of an experience that really hits you hard cool but coming back to I guess the question on how is it that what I do is different. Pretty soon when I was leaving college, I spent a month in Johannesburg around the World Summit on Sustainable Development in 2002. And I spent a month uh, learning about, uh, you know, where the global development discourse is going with respect to multi-stakeholder partnership, the increasing role of corporates in contributing to the development puzzle or solving the development puzzle. I also spent at the same time a month teaching young people in Soweto on the new technology skills, the digital literacy that was new then and is still kind of quite relevant. I think that experience of realizing that, you know, there are more people or more young people who need to be involved and be the bridge between the ones who are more powerful with all the money and the resources and also connect with young people and bridge that gap. One of the things that I think we do at Quest is to really engage with the corporate sector, with CSR, and uh, really look at how to proactively engage with companies in, in helping them design CSR programs which align to the needs of young people. So if you're a technology company thinking about the future of work, you're thinking about the future of learning, we help design programs or program ideas that would uh, help companies meaningfully contribute through their financial resources, through their expertise in technology, to how young people can learn and grow in the future. So we, we try to be the bridge between sort of corporate vision of, of a future world, which needs 21st century skills with young people's aspirations is one of the things. And I think the other is really to work with NGOs who are really thinking about 
the role and relevance that they have in the changing landscape of civil society where you know from a rights based approach that a lot of organizations uh, have taken to also balancing that with connecting with youth in their communities and providing livelihood pathways while you know we've seen a lot of organizations use young people as community workers and as community activists we've also realized that their career paths may not uh, you can't stay a volunteer all your life and you need to be able to train facilitators uh, that you employ to also be employable and you touched upon rights based work and and i say that just cuz many of our listeners may not actually understand what does that mean and and so maybe if you can give us a sense of what is rights based work what does that typically entail uh, clearly your father and a whole host of organizations i guess uh, spend quite a bit of time on that and you know i am not the best person to do that because if 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 any one of them hear me then they might just like disown me for that <laughs> for explaining this <laughs> that's why i'm asking is to get you in trouble akash <laughs> and i hear you typing so you better not be looking this up in google don't cheat akash <laughs> no no i'm not i'm not cheating i'm just uh, looking up you know the latest uh... no in in your honestly in your own language and i say that because that would be um, what is the different is there yeah just what is it i guess yeah i think uh, one second just i was i was just looking at a couple of charters but maybe i should stop with the technical search uh, yes, <laughs> yes. i guess there are two aspects uh, as i understand this one is that there is the whole you know constitution of india and being aware of the key aspects of the constitution of india around fraternity around uh, harmony around justice uh, and using the constitution as a lens to understand who i am and how do i make meaning of the world i think the other is to be able to look at the political narrative that what are some of the political narratives that are there at a local level at a state level at a national level and to be able to then really understand if you are able to respond and engage with power sometimes uh, showing dissent towards some of the decisions that they are making which are not constitutional or being able to just represent the voice of the ones that who are the most vulnerable and marginalized in front of the ones who are in power thank you and the reason i think it's it, it's good just to get your thoughts on this is because i also know from our work with with quest alliance from dasa's work with quest alliance that many of the partner organizations that quest works with are more local are more community based and may also support uh these individuals with their rights because sometimes those rights are not being met and they're not treated i guess in that manner that again people like yourself or myself are treated <laughs> and and so if you can talk about i guess a little bit around how 
how have you been able to kind of straddle both sides? And, and I say this because at least in the nonprofit sector globally and India, there's a huge, at times, heated debates on are you rights-based or are you sort of service delivery? Um, and and uh, both, again, have its place and both also have stakeholders who then criticize the other one fully saying, well, you know, why can you do that? And this is not empowering again. And I think you've talked about power and Again, that's something we hope to talk about even in these conversations with no cost extension is around power and what does that mean? And so how have you sort of straddled, I guess, both sides and what have been some of the challenges for you to, to make this happen? Sure. I think uh, that's that's been quite a struggle, to be honest, to be able to balance uh, the two. And I think the frame that I've kind of made peace with or apply is that there is this kind of balance between rights and duties. So if I look at it from a young person's perspective that, you know, the right of a young person is to be able to get the right to make their own decisions. And the duty there that uh, a young person has is the duty to take more leadership in uh, making their own decision and not wait for that to happen by chance. Similarly, the idea of they, they have the right to enabling and uh, safe spaces to discover themselves, to realize their own goals through some kind of social action. They have the duty to, to be promoting the constitutional values of fraternity, of, of social harmony by, by proactively engaging in diverse relationships uh, and recognizing kind of the intersectionalities that they have to live with in terms of identity, gender diversity. So in a sense, uh, kind of this balance of uh, rights and duties is I think the the combination that you are that 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 we are trying to uh, promote through some of the work we do as well. I mean, I guess it, I think you've answered it, which is how do you grapple both sides? Because there is, again, in the development sector at least, conversations about can one do both? And I guess even in describing your work, which again is is fantastic, and and you work very closely with companies harnessing their experiences in technology and enabling those experiences to reach those who otherwise don't have access to this technology. But like you were saying, and, and I think then people, some people may assume there's a conflict in that. Who is your client? Who are you benefiting? And I guess at least for me and, and with Dasra, you know, I think this has been something that we definitely also grapple with. As you know, we work with NGOs as well as with givers. And I guess personally, at least in the last year, uh, seeing you know all the disparities just in your face, which were always there, unfortunately, but we never saw it in the same manner that I think we've been able to see, again, not just in India, but globally as well. I think it, it makes, I guess, me as an individual really question some of these decisions and perhaps not be as balanced as you're saying you have been able to be. And, and there's no right or wrong or black or white, but have there been, I guess, greater questions that you or the organization has put upon themselves, given sort of, you know, what we've seen of the more recent past? Uh, I think 
I think oftentimes we get stuck in taking these sides also, right? In terms of, are you a rights-based organization or are you a service delivery organization? And I think the beauty is to be able to, you know, look at both sides and, and put both of those sides into your core DNA. And, and I think that is something which has been a learning. I don't think we are there yet in terms of being able to balance the rights and duties approach. Funders, for example, may want you to be more service-oriented and deliver outcomes on uh, youth, in, in our case, uh, youth being able to get jobs. At the same time, they are not putting constraints on us on the approach we use to say that they can get jobs is the outcome, but you can you know, engage young people in, in social action, you can engage young people in uh, whatever way that you want to be able to uh, use to, to help get those jobs. So it's a little bit of you know, uh, balancing our perspective of the outcome that is required from funders with uh, the approach that we feel we would need to use to, to bring in both sides. And, and can you give a, a sense to the listeners, what, what does Quest Alliance do? But I think if you could also talk about a, a few of the stories and, and have allowed you to either pivot or reinforce, I guess, some of the decisions. Uh, so we've been around for, Questlands have been around for about 15 years. I think the first three years we started as a USAID project where we had the mandate to demonstrate how technology-based interventions in both training facilitators and in training learners can help you know, provide better 21st century skills to uh, young people who are either in school or who have dropped out of school. So our early stage focus was to demonstrate models that use technology to empower and train teachers, facilitators to create more a proof of concept on how technology can help empower learners as well. You know, we came as Quest also said that, no, we don't want to just do that, but we want to be able to register this organization in India to be an Indian entity because this grant we had got from USAID in Washington, D.C., and there was a U.S.-based NGO involved, and they agreed to give us a one-year no-cost extension, which means they allowed us to use the funding we had not spent for one additional year so that the organization can be incubated. So that one year of no-cost extension is actually the reason why Quest got registered. Uh, and 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 maybe sometimes you know they have positive outcomes as well to to actually uh, you know use that money to to organization to to incubate the organization. I didn't answer your question. I didn't answer your question. I will. I will. But uh... no, no. But there was one good point. I think that it would be good just to help people understand because. Many people even just question, you know, how do you start an organization? And and so, sorry, I'm just asking a follow-up to what you just said. Were you based in India at the time, number one? And I guess number two, you maybe talking a little bit about how that all came about. Because again, traditionally people think you need a legal entity, you'll need to have a track record, and especially somebody who's as established and at times bureaucratic as USAID. 
people always say only after you've been around for 15, 20, 30 years, you can get a grant from them kind of thing. And so I guess, how did you sort of put this all together without even a legal entity? And, and how did you start, like, I guess, working with the community if you weren't even in the community? Yeah, so I think the the early years, basically, I was part of an international youth foundation, which was an organization based in Baltimore in DC, who had the mandate to work in five countries, which included India, and they were trying to find someone to help start their India operations. So I got in touch with them and uh, I was at a, at a conference that they were running in Alexandria in Egypt at that time working with Microsoft in Middle East and Africa. And that's where I learned about the idea that they had got to start some work in India. And so I actually happened to be at the right place at the right time where I met the International Youth Foundation. They kind of hired me for the first three years to run this project. So the short answer is I think it's easier to, to ride or piggyback on existing initiatives in my view to be able to learn from the mistakes of the organizations that are already doing work in the field and then find ways if there are any to, to then maybe translate some of those project-based engagements into organizations. At that time, I guess, uh, statistics-wise, at least, Bihad had lower socioeconomic sort of development indicators uh, than many sort of, than perhaps most of the countries globally. Help us understand what, what the conditions were, where you, I'm sure, were in the field. What was the situation, I guess, in the schools, in the communities, and how welcoming or unwelcoming were there to somebody who was used to be at Microsoft and then now has just come into this village and say, I'm going to help with X, Y, Z. Yeah, so I think early stage when we actually did our situational analysis back then, you know, uh, a big reason uh, that came up was that, you know, parents don't trust the school. Parents think that nothing happens in school. People more or less waste time in school because uh, they don't really see any change that their students have made uh, in terms of learning levels. Teachers feel that parents are uh, not doing their bit. Girls are taking care of their siblings or doing household work. They are expected in the harvesting season need to go to the fields to for for harvesting. So, so there is this blame game going on between teachers and parents and the schools themselves are, are in a really bad conditions. They don't have any playgrounds. There are very few classrooms that are even having basic electricity. The midday meal is probably the only reason kids come to school so that they can get food. So there is very little room to uh, learn anything else. And, and there is no room for, you know, where learning happens, which is outside the classroom, uh, whether that's uh, through sports, through arts, or whatever the case may be. So I, I can't think of a story right now. It's, it's probably just no, something No, that's, that's fine. That's fine. Don't worry. It's... But the other thing I would probably wanted to say in this context, one of the you know set of work was around working with schools the other work was also with respect to 
training teachers and facilitators the 21st century skills that they need and how technology plays a role in training teachers on 21st century skills so oftentimes when we would visit a lot of the classrooms teachers would be using personal stories that they have had and using those stories as uh, triggers to talk about uh, and inspire young people the insight there was that teachers should be able to you know bring more of their experience to the classroom and and not just stay limited to say the course or the curriculum that needs to be taught because that's when you can start building relationships that are more more meaningful when the teacher is more bringing their life into the life of the students so i think technology not as a as a end in itself but a means for personal reflection uh, for a teacher and then that personal reflection being used in the classroom as an important uh, experience to build relationships with students and i think this is again something that um, many people just don't understand right and and i guess uh, so for example like you said you work in many hard to reach areas which have not seen economic growth in the country uh, so bihar jharkhand and other states that are uh, just not being served by the for profit sector and many times not effectively by the government either you know for a variety of reasons just very difficult places in all respects how then uh, i guess does 21st century training and education reach areas where jobs may still be stuck in the 18th or 19th century and i say this again because you know many of these areas i'm assuming even now you know are agriculture in nature bullet carts i mean they they're not 21st century in terms of what we assume i guess so how do you, i guess how do these two come together and do they even need to yeah that's a great question i think and and the the learning is that let's say in a place like a bihar or northeast where local jobs don't exist right or very few jobs whether those jobs would be almost uh, you know for teachers or for the local para health workers or like they probably development sector is probably the biggest employer in in some of these spaces the reality is that they would need to migrate to be able to get that job what we do at least in in some of these spaces is really get young people to go out and do their own market scan you know uh, talk to local employers go and you know uh, bring back data present that data using excel sheets or powerpoint presentations back to their own community members uh, saying this is the reality of our local labor market this is the kind of, through internet search i can find out what are the jobs that i can go and do in the nearest uh, town whether that is uh, a patna in in bihar or it is a rajkot in gujarat and i think that really helps in starting the negotiation between the youth and the parents and the community who would then say okay these are the kind of jobs that are available then you are allowed to go out for a fixed period of time say 6 months uh, as long as making sure that you can do that in groups so then you know you you need to arrange for hostel facilities or some kind of a safe housing 
boys have a problem with you know cooking only or rather being used to food or that their mom cooks and they need to learn to you know uh, make their own food so a lot of these kind of processes that are around negotiation and uh, agency building are embedded in the program itself uh, so you're learning 21st century skills you're using them to negotiate with your community members that's one approach that has you know helped both people migrate from spaces that they are coming from but also you know find local jobs as well i think the other is being able to you know use in our secondary schools work for example we uh, get young people to engage with local community problems saying okay my mother faces problems in uh, washing dishes uh, and can i you know envision a kind of a local dishwasher solution or a electric uh, brush that she can use uh, so very local solutions that uh, young people can imagine to solve problems in their communities uh, using technology where they become creators of new uh, ideas and not limit themselves to then only consuming content I, I guess to a certain extent in hearing you explain it and maybe these are what's called 21st century skills but i guess to a certain extent it's also giving knowledge to these communities for them to then make decisions that maybe they don't have access to that knowledge already and, and it, so it seems kind of like you're just bringing i guess some of those practices but leveraging technology far more effectively you're kind of creating a movement i i guess where, where technology again is just a tool but not necessarily a technology driven job and maybe that's where i've been misconfused this whole time when i hear 21st century skills i just assume that also relates to like being in a call center or something that happens in 21st century and i guess in hearing you that may not be the case or am i just getting this completely wrong no i think i think it's fair to say what is so 21st century about this this is good education and good learning right that you need to build meaningful relationships you need to solve problems you need to be more self aware you need to learn to you know make your own decisions the difference i do feel is one in terms of the tools itself you are learning to use new tools and you are it's it's a medium to also build your confidence you will need to be able to use data and data analytics more in most of the new jobs that are coming up as a small entrepreneur or as a micro entrepreneur you you will need to use amazon flipkart and other platforms to be able to sell so you will need to learn to you know have a bank account that is linked to a phone pay or a google pay to be able to receive money so there are definitely you know areas that will need a greater technology fluency not just literacy to be able to access new and emerging opportunities that that the market is going to throw up the green economy is going to be uh, you know waste management or solar technicians and we will need to prepare young people to to access uh, these kinds of opportunities
so Akash, one of the things we're trying to do in these conversations, and sorry, we've taken up a lot of your time, and I hope I hope it's okay, is is to have colleagues at Dasra to sort of ask their question. And so Yashi has a question. Go ahead, Yashi. Hi, Akash. Thank you so much. I think I was just listening to the conversation. It was very, very insightful. And something on the lines of what you've been talking to Deval about regarding technology. I wanted to ask, what are some ways in which digital access can be made more inclusive for communities and young people, especially, you know, post-COVID times, maybe? So I think access is definitely the one of the biggest barriers in terms of access has been infrastructure. So of computers in schools, there aren't enough computer labs in schools, there is no internet access in schools. If there is internet, then you know, you don't have good quality content that is relevant, localized, etc. The issue of access, one of the things that we've uh, learned is also with respect to, you know, mindsets that families have around accessing digital devices for learning. I often joke that, you know, oftentimes it's the ABCD. So it was astrology, Bollywood, cricket, and devotional. These are the four things, uh, family, and also where content gets streamed the most. The E for education or employability, it's not looked at as a source for, for learning, especially during the pandemic. Some of that has shifted where families are now also being able to participate in classrooms because the classroom is actually reached their homes. Although the device is still shared, right? You have one device shared between four people, five people in a family. And so one of the experiments we ran was actually starting mobile learning libraries, which means we had shared devices. We had a library of say 20 phones, 25 phones that was circulated as shared devices, which means one girl got to keep the phone for 20 days just to herself. And she got to use it to uh, attend online classes. She got to use it to learn on mobile apps and also build the trust with the family saying that there is learning and we could show evidence of that learning through some kind of a basic analytics that the app was giving. Uh, so that allowed then the family to say, we'll invest, uh, you know, 1500 rupees, 2000 rupees uh, for the device purchase. And we were offering some kind of a recharge bonus. So if you would learn an X amount of uh, lessons on our platform, we'll unlock a monthly internet charge for your for that phone number so i think that was one experiment which worked well within the limitations of what we operate in the issue is not money that's the mindset shift that we also need to have as practitioners it's about breaking mindsets of what is the device meant to do whether there is you know safety is an issue especially with, with internet, uh, there is a huge angle of how safe are my interactions. So we need to also orient the families on what are the things that uh, you need to do to make sure that the safety of your child is also maintained and uh, make some of the learning and growth uh, visible uh, on the device 
that's what we are we are really after in terms of breaking and the other is where you know there's a genuine issue with devices what we have tried is also basic in uh, voice uh, messages that are sent on phones that are tips of how to use your home and your local surroundings to engage kids meaningfully where the parents actually become the teachers and you are sending them messages so that's another uh, strategy especially during covid that has uh, that has worked when lockdown happened march 2020 what was some of the shifts and maybe if you could talk a little bit about what was the quest alliance model what was it pre covid what were the shifts that you made in march 2020 and now that it's 2021 are there even more shifts that you have to make so maybe if you can just tell us about where the program was being run how children and youth were accessing your program pre covid the last wave uh, sorry the first wave and then this last wave i think that'll also be helpful for the listeners just to understand the differences in how children are accessing education in india so one thing that changed significantly was uh, uh, one of course for teachers a lot of their class had to move online or had to move on phone based setup so teachers started demanding a lot more inputs on how to teach online how to facilitate online to design some kind of a digital learning class so that demand otherwise earlier teachers were quite resistant to you know saying why should we use technology to teach what is in it for us so demand definitely saw we saw a huge increase in demand the second is the students themselves uh, you know have very limited access to digital devices and i think we spoke a little bit about that given the limited access to digital devices we saw a lot of students sharing devices so when we would you know see that there are say 50 60 people online there would actually be four times that number because there are four students sharing a device so there was uh, that angle where students coming together working uh, on the same device that we saw uh, we also saw a lot more engagement on our online learning platform so just in haryana alone we saw around 45000 students download the plat- download our our app uh, and started learning and started completing typically our completion rates would be around 45 50% of the total courses that are on our platform would see a completion in the lockdown we saw almost a 80% completion rate on the platform so there was definitely a high engagement that we were seeing from our pre covid days and also increased enrollment on the platform from typically 30000 students a year would be online we would be engaged in our youth program to almost 88000 students in the year that we saw enroll but we've also got a lot of you know distress calls from students saying we don't have enough like this fear of missing out we don't have enough data packs we don't have like i mentioned earlier our parents are not allowing us to come online because they don't trust what is being taught so there is that whole element 
that played out but also i think students becoming creators of digital content especially on issues of child rights child marriage students creating content and sending that out uh, in the communities that they are part of so definitely that shift from only being consumers of information and content to feeling like they can express their voice they can express their opinion using technology on issues that concern them and sending it out so a little bit of that push we've also seen in some of the work that we've done as of now approximately 60% of the kids you feel have access to some sort of digital device 40% do not that 40% typically will be from perhaps economically poorer backgrounds and so for 2 years and like you said whether it's excitement or something else there's definitely a dip now that may continue this year in terms of even that 60% accessing education and and so is it safe to say between 40 to 60% of the kids and children and youth that you work with will actually have limited if any education for an entire 2 year period because of covid wave 1 2 and the multiple waves unfortunately that may come come about yeah easily i think it's it's fair to say that at least 40% of 40 to 50% of children will not have access to any form of learning opportunities that has a social angle to it where people are learning together they probably have access to some form of written text print materials books sent by a few organizations to children's homes so there would be some uh, access to print material that we are we are hearing of and and that we've also been involved in but from a digital perspective definitely not uh, more than more than uh, 50 60% would have access pre covid i think there was a lot of emphasis that was starting to take place on learning outcomes kids were enrolled in school they had a desire to learn quest alliance did fabulous work in training teachers to be more excited and be more forthcoming with the community and the kids themselves and so like you were saying some of the basics reading literacy numeracy these were areas that you and other organizations you know across the country would sort of focus on and of course pratham has the usr test which year on year were showing some you know improvement at least that was happening given this sort of two year hiatus and as you just overlaid the 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 so psychosocial sort of support that kids will need just to be confident again or even read again or or write again do you see this as sort of you know in 2022 march or or june let's say 2022 when the new school year will open up in different states that it'll just be a two year sort of pathway in terms of bringing people back to where they need to be or do you see this as actually a, a difference in the way we're even looking at long-term goals of education uh to to include sort of aspects that honestly perhaps were not been included as much pre-covid one big uh, you know emphasis and this is something we talk about quite a bit on our work as well is to do with self-learning or self-directed learning and the importance of you know a learner deciding what they want to learn the pace at which they want to learn something how should they assess themselves and get feedback from 
from peers, from self-assessment that they do. So I think a lot of the importance on self-directed learning, I think that's going to gain a lot of momentum because it's going to mean that the responsibility and the choice of what needs to be learned would be much more or will need to shift much more to the learner. And I think that mindset shift, which will will be brought about because of of these COVID years, will have a much longer lasting impact. More educational systems will think critically about as to are we really promoting this mindset in our learners. These are also the skills that, that are relevant for the future from a work perspective, that what is more important than studying and passing exams are the skills of learning how to learn. And I think this pandemic will definitely accelerate that process and mindsets amongst some of the key decision makers who would also have to think critically about, therefore, how do we assess if we really want to promote this kind of a shift in learning? I, I, I guess, I mean, given clearly you've done a lot Quest Alliance works across multiple states in the country. Uh, you focus on different age groups as well. Has there been, I guess, a time where somebody or something really challenged you? I, I could even say from, say, back in 2009, 10, where we were developing digital solutions, uh, the big challenge was most of our centers did not have internet. So we had to work with the constraint of no internet and design a solution at uh, back in 2009-10, which was quite a significant shift that we made, saying that everything is, is internet-based to kind of a hybrid of an offline and online. I think working with government definitely is has been a big challenge but also a big pivotal moment where say partnering with the ministry of skills and entrepreneurship where we are working on a model for uh, training or, or rather master trainers who would then you know cascade the idea forward I think companies, whether companies, uh, you know, will continue to invest in projects or will come together to really invest in a larger goal and allow for, uh, you know, the organization to really pool resources from multiple sources rather than only, say, meet outcomes that are very project oriented. So I think one of the shifts that we've made is to build a network called the Future Right Skills Network, where we've, uh, you know, gotten uh, organizations like Accenture, Cisco, JP Morgan to invest in a collective goal of, say, getting uh, ITIs ready for the future of work and not take, you know, funding that is only based on project deliverables around you know, the number of youth reached, but, but invest in a bigger platform. I think obviously, uh, you know, we, we lost a very important uh, team member. Uh, so that's been quite uh, challenging and pivotal in terms of, you know, losing, losing Abhijit and then having to, you know, reassess 
the values and and what he stood for and being able to then create space for you know more people to hold those values that an individual brought to the table i think uh, to be able to um, kind of deal with that loss and yet see it as a way for for more leaders to emerge has been quite challenging and and probably it's going to be a pivotal moment in in our evolution i think what we've seen with this last covid wave is that all of us know people who have passed away because of this second wave and many teachers have passed away many parents have passed away many colleagues have passed away and and so uh, again we touched upon this with abhijit but there's so many people out there who've lost loved ones and colleagues and don't know how to go forward now questioning you know a lot and and so if you can share a little bit about what you maybe individually or as well as what quest i think had done when one of your key leaders and partners in this passed away all of a sudden i think that'll just help some of the listeners just think about their own i guess coping mechanisms and 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 how they can move forward yeah i think that's that's just a difficult one to uh, to bring Uh, but I, I i think maybe i i can say from my personal uh, experience of loss i feel that talking about it and sharing the uh, gaps that the loss has left has definitely you know helped me accept it uh, make it a part of uh, life and also to be able to ask for more help and support to other people when i have been feeling that void because it could just be a conversation it could be a moment where a lot of that comes back and so not necessarily keeping it within or inside but but just being able to express that loss uh, regularly has definitely given a lot of energy to just say what you what what i am feeling with with respect to that loss often times when you lose someone who's close to you or maybe i when i lost someone who was close to me i also try that extra hard to you know think about it from that person's perspective more than i would have when that person was actually around and so i try to be that person more than i would have because i know that that person is around and so we can both play our role so in a sense i feel more maybe balanced as a human being more because of the absence of someone who was who was close to me and so it it's helped me i think just be a better person and a more balanced person than i would otherwise have been in the presence of him that loss gives me a certain amount of energy to to bring a side of me that i knew existed but was buried somewhere or hidden somewhere i try more to to bring out the different sides of me uh knowing that i am living also on his behalf Uh, again having lost someone close to us just a few weeks ago the, there was a quote i read which is something along the lines of if you mention somebody's name or think about the work that they're doing they're still there and it's only when we stop mentioning their name or 
living their values or seeing the contribution, that's only actually when they pass away, which is again, extremely difficult to do, especially for those of us who have lost, you know, two parents or three loved ones, or, you know, all of a sudden in a week or two, it's just, it's, again, it's, it's so hard to sort of, I guess, grapple with that loss and pain. It is up to us then to ensure that they live on through what we do is, is so, so important and critical. And I think that's clearly the impact that everyone has in the world is it's not just their physical impact, it's what they leave behind with us. And one of the aspects I know that Quest Alliance has been year after year been recognized for is being one of the greatest place to work uh, in the NGO sector. And you have all done a fabulous job in terms of bringing individuals from different walks of life and enabling them to thrive. Can you give maybe a, a couple of examples, and you don't have to mention real names, but how you've enabled individuals who may not have the same exposures like you did at Microsoft, but still are taking on roles that you know, if it wasn't for Quest Alliance, they would not have that exposure. And how did you sort of support them in that journey? And so how how have you dealt with this? And, and, and I think this is something that many NGOs grapple with that, you know, we may be able to get people from better schools than even what we attended. But then there's still many people, honestly, from the communities that we serve that may not have that exposure, but still have a deep desire and many times greater desire to uplift. And, and so how, how does Quest sort of balance with this? And, and what do you do as an organization to ensure that everyone actually has, you know, this role to play, regardless of your background or educational credentials? I think there's, there's a, there are a few things that I can share. One is as we've grown over the last, say, 10, 12 years from, say, being 20, 30 people to now 230 people, that, you know, journeys obviously becomes more and more difficult. But I think there have been a few things that we've done in terms of investing. One is people have a certain sense of belonging to the organization, which is, you know, cultivated by creating spaces where they are part of key decision-making, whether it's around the strategic plan, whether it is around uh, developing policies that are going to impact them. There is a certain amount of investment in terms of learning pathways, whether it is in terms of building their facilitation skills, their leadership skills, to the extent that obviously they uh, would question authority, power, and be also okay to hold conflict with uh, senior leaders in the organization, which means that the senior leaders in the organization also have the mental models to, to work with those kind of disruptive conversations also be able to really create the space for also well-being for uh, the individuals to feel like you know the space cares for us and invests in our well-being whether that is through having a dedicated counselor or whether it is through having people take a day off uh, in a week especially when uh, times are tough really investing in in any learning opportunity that they feel is important for them to to learn and grow it i think the role of i think from a leadership perspective the role of you know how are we creating the vibe which is i'm naming it as the well-being inclusion belonging and equity in people to to really learn to 
sort of work with each other, but also invest in the sort of organizational growth. I, I think you forgot your pizza oven because I think that's a critical piece. <laughs> so, so that's my last question. I mean, you started off saying that you were arguing, I guess, perhaps, and I'm saying arguing, maybe it wasn't an argument, but seeing you as a youth and telling your mom that I want to do something in sports or cooking, like you said, maybe that argument you didn't win back then, but you do have a, a pizza oven. And, and how did that come about in your office, by the way? So how did that come about? And how are you still fulfilling your culinary goals? Yeah, I think that's a great point. And that's the point I forgot is really food uh, as a means to building uh, culture and meaningful relationships. And, and I think food was one of the first things we invested in as we moved into our own office to, to get someone who can cook. And that led to quite a lot of, you know, deep relationships being built in office as well, because you were every day coming in and, and first going to the kitchen to ask what's for, for breakfast or what's for lunch or what's for evening snack that I think over time grew into uh, having more regular conversations or get togethers on every first Friday. That's the time we started kind of collectively thinking about what could be good additions. So we, 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 we built a pizza oven together in our office, which was a lot of fun to build, but also make uh, regular uh, monthly events where we cook together as a team. And this vibe that you're saying, which is uh, clearly you know, palpable when we would come to the office and see everyone, how was that created in the new normal of Zoom? of all of us working from home and not seeing each other, not being next to your pizza oven, not having those. Uh, I mean, we used to have Friday lunches, as you know, and um, uh, you know, from, from the beginning, for 20 years, every Friday, all of us would sit together, we would order food from outside, and that was the only time no meetings were allowed. We haven't, I'm sure just like you all, we haven't been able to do that since March 2020. And so how do you how do you keep this vibe alive yeah, with the circumstances that we're in right now? Yeah, we used to have lunch every day. So I think the first was, you know, when, when people were just moving into their own bases when the lockdown happened and just to be able to do a virtual uh, meeting where you could see people in their homes and really connect with them sitting in their homes was, I think, the starting point where, you know, you were really in some ways letting your cameras down, but you could really, you know, look into people's various contexts, whether it is someone sitting in a rural Gujarat or in a rural Bihar or in a fancy home in Bangalore, uh, which you could never do sitting in, in an office meeting or in a retreat. I think the second one was with respect to just the safety uh, from a health perspective. So just uh, bringing in all the health insurance, all the counseling and support service so that everyone feels that the health part is covered for families as well. So there was, I think, a significant investment that was made in that. I think the third was just family days. So every month we do family days or first Fridays, which was uh, now where 
you know families can join in and there is some sort of a cultural uh, program that's happening or some kind of a magic show that's happening where kids of uh, of our people can also come and see each other and and experience something together catering to the family as the unit uh, versus the individual as the unit and and creating small spaces of learning together as families being a digital 21st century organization we definitely had a lot of investments we had made in trainings but not enough on digital learning and i think this was the year where digital learning was a premium we we really allowed a lot of time and money going into uh, upskilling and learning opportunities so i feel that was another one and 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 somewhere we are also learning i think you know how do you assess performance in uh, an online world should you assess performance given you know the emotional and the mental challenges that people are going through and if uh you don't then what would be the criteria for people to experience growth those are those are things we are struggling with right now fully uh, especially as people transition from you know managers to senior managers to leaders in the organization no no thank you i think that's i mean it's amazing again how you've been able to do this many things and keep the team motivated keep yourself motivated and still serve the community Thank you Akash. I think we were able to ask some questions about, you know, COVID and where we see sort of education and children and youth going forward. So really really appreciate your time on this. It's been it's been great. And as always, thank you for the great work that you all do. I think it's amazing and we continue to be inspired. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me and thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about Quest Alliance and support their phenomenal work, go to questalliance.net, or you can go to our website, dasra.org forward slash NCE. Until next time, stay safe. No Cost Extension is produced by Baka Media.